How do you think about Jesus? How do you think about Jesus? And what do you think about Jesus? How do you feel about Jesus? What feelings and thoughts does Jesus evoke within you? What sort of feelings and thoughts does Jesus evoke within you and from you? In a book called Knowledge of the Holy, the great 20th century pastor, author, theologian, mentor, teacher, A.W. Tozer wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most important thing about us is what we think about Jesus or about God. One might say the most important thing that a person, a woman, a man thinks about Jesus is the most important thing about them. So what do you think? How do you feel? What thoughts or feelings does Jesus evoke from you, from deep within? This morning I want to ask you to reflect and think deeply about these sorts of things. This morning as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to read some about some people who knew Jesus pretty well, fairly well, as many of us do. And Mark is going to tell us about some thoughts and feelings that Jesus evoked in them, that Jesus evoked through them. Before we get to the scriptures, let's pray. God, we so want uh, clarity from you, about you, about ourselves, about the world, about the life that you've given us, about your kingdom. We really want clarity. If all of us here together are like me, we need clarity about ourselves, about you, about the world, about how things are. We ask that as we read uh, today from your word that you would give us that clarity, that you would give us eyes to see and ears that are able to hear your word, your truth, your grace. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be quickly and forever forgotten. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we get to the end of what some scholars see as section two of Mark's gospel. Section two of Mark's gospel began with the attempt of Jesus' family, you may remember back in chapter three, of Jesus' family to take him home, to pull him out, to pull him back, because he seemed to be a deranged individual. And so they wanted to sort of rescue him and preserve their family dignity. Over the last few weeks, we followed Jesus across the Sea of Galilee to the east, and then back across to the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. Last week, you may remember, Jesus healed two people there first, a woman who had been hemorrhaging blood for 12 years, and then the daughter, a 12-year-old daughter of a synagogue ruler named Jairus, both healings of which were the result of their expressed faith and trust and hope in Jesus. 
And now we come to chapter six. Jesus is again on the move. Mark never tells his readers exactly why Jesus goes where he does, what his intention is. Mark kind of leaves that for us to quickly discover at each, at each new place and each new context and setting where we find Jesus. Mark only records that Jesus' movements always seem to be abrupt and almost arbitrary. So now reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Listen closely. This is the word of God. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where does this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Some of them may be married to one of them. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. Mark tells us that he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Just a few. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. And this passage opens with Jesus again at the synagogue, as was his custom, as was the custom of all faithful Jewish people then as now on the Sabbath. And Jesus was teaching. Jesus was allowed to teach in the synagogues, as we see in the first five chapters and now six of Mark's gospel. And we have already seen multiple times in Mark how people responded to Jesus' teaching and preaching. They said he spoke with authority. They said he amazed with his teaching. We see that he disturbed or upended evil spirits continually. When Jesus spoke, people listened. E.F. Hutton, remember that? The responses regularly were astonishment, which is another way of translating the word that we more often see as amazed. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were impressed. They were in awe. They were taken aback, and they were surprised by his authority and what his speaking, teaching, preaching did. The Greek word... Greek word here, here's our Greek word for the day. Escandalizito, escandalizoto. Okay, that was a hard one for me to say because that's the imperfect passive indicative third person plural tense of the Greek word scandalizo, which is a little bit easier to say, which in English is translated scandalize, which we know means to offend or to cause someone to stumble, to cause someone to go astray, to cause someone to fall into sin, the lexicon says, to cause someone to distrust, to cause or create an offense, to offend someone. The New American Bible translates this sentence, they found Jesus too much for them, intolerable. Today's English version simply says here, they rejected Jesus. Nobody likes rejection. And they had been amazed by Jesus' teaching and amazed by Jesus' miracles. What happened? Why the offense? The hometown people's questions shed some light. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? 
Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon aren't his sisters with us? Isn't this Mary's son? Mark doesn't tell us anything about Jesus' nativity, about his birth, about the prophecies leading up to it, about Zechariah and Elizabeth, about Mary and Joseph. Zero, zilch. This is the beginning. This is all we get of Jesus' birth, his origins, his family system, his family history. Isn't this Mary's son? In other words, this guy is one of us, and he's just a carpenter. We know that. So is this some kind of trick? Is this some kind of joke? Is this some kind of scam? We went to school with this guy. We bought furniture from this guy. We have bought furniture, farming tools. He's a carpenter. He made stuff. It's Jesus. He's Jesus. No way are we bowing down to Jesus. No way are we making much of Jesus. He is just Jesus. When you go to a conference, the expert speaker is not someone you grew up with, not someone from your office. The expert and the speaker came from a long way away, and he has lots of, or she has many credentials, but Jesus has none. And Jesus' friends from school and his parents' friends and their neighbors weren't about to join the Jesus movement despite Jesus' wisdom, despite Jesus' miracles, despite Jesus' way, despite Jesus' truth, despite Jesus' love. They're not going to do it. Just like you would not get on the bandwagon of somebody from middle school. Not going to happen. But their hang-up really is just a technicality. Their hang-up with Jesus really was just a technicality. And yet it was enough for them to reject Jesus so that Jesus declares a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. A prophet, a way of referring to himself or someone who generally had that office and was called and gifted in such, is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. Welcome home. And Jesus, Mark tells us, Jesus was amazed. But Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. They had little, a little mutual amazement thing going on. Jesus amazed at them. Them amazed at Jesus first. Jesus then amazed at the people for different reasons and about different things. The people were amazed at Jesus teaching and his miracles. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus was amazed at their lack of belief, their unwillingness, their unwillingness to believe, their opposition to living as if what Jesus said and all that Jesus did was true. You remember that's the definition of believe, to live as if or to live in such a way that one believes and acts on what one has faith in. To believe is to live in every way as if something is true. But it's as if the people of Nazareth, including Jesus' family and friends and his parents' friends and his friends of friends, it's as if the people of Nazareth were simply looking for a reason to not believe. Looking for a reason to be offended, looking for a reason to reject Jesus as Messiah and Son of God, which rewind all the way back to chapter 1, verse 1, Matthew's thesis statement. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. The beginning of the good news. This is the beginning of the good news about who, about Jesus as specifically Messiah and Son of God. Which has been Mark's assertion all along in which 
Jesus' friends and close family, no thanks. There might have been some sibling rivalry going on. There might have been some simple incredulity. Or the people of Little Backwoods Nazareth may have possessed some sort of subconscious psychological ceiling that worked against them, thinking that anyone from Nazareth could or would ever amount to much. We really don't know exactly for sure. But what we do know is that those who should have known Jesus best, those who could have known Jesus best, found him offensive, at least at first, at least at first. At least in his early public ministry, things do change later on. Most of them come around, it seems. But what about us? That's them. What about us? What about Mark's readers? This is at least half of Mark's point. It isn't just that some of Jesus' family and friends in Nazareth were offended by Jesus, but also that many of Mark's readers had also been suspicious of Jesus, offended by Jesus, rejected Jesus. And it wasn't just Mark who recorded such things. In the very first chapter of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 11, John wrote, He came to his own home, and his own people did not accept him. In chapters 9 through 11 of the book that we know as Romans, Paul's magnum opus in this theological wonder where he sort of puts everything together and answers all these questions and gets to the pinnacle of, of that treatise in chapters 9 through 11. He wrestles openly with why have the Jewish people rejected the Jewish Messiah, Jesus? Why, how, for what reason and what purpose? What's going on? And yet Mark writes here not generally of the Jews or the Jewish people, but rather specifically of Jesus' friends and relatives in his hometown, which today and especially in the eyes of the world is the church. Which feels some proprietary rights toward Jesus, don't we? And we claim him as our own. We are, by engrafting and self-identification, the family of Jesus today. Raise your hand if you're a family member of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's ours, brother, uncle, savior. He's ours. We're his. And we have not only, not also in some ways... And for our own reasons, been offended by Jesus, have we not? Do we not in some ways find Jesus offensive? Everyone loves stained glass Jesus, right? Everyone loves dashboard Jesus. Everyone loves icon Jesus. Everyone loves pet-friendly Jesus. We, most of us, love American Jesus. We love classic Jesus or generations before us at least did. We even love crucifix Jesus. But when Jesus begins turning over the tables of our lives, the tables that we hold so dear, the tables we love, the tables to which we are attached and committed, well, things change a little bit. Things are a little bit different. How we think and feel about Jesus may change and we may find him offensive. For multiple examples of this, one only needs to read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, our favorite part of which is the gracious introduction, which we call the Beatitudes, which we put on refrigerator magnets, note cards, things like that. 
After which things start to get kind of hard when you read the Sermon on the Mount, don't they? I don't, I mean, just think about it. Refrigerator magnet, anyone ever seen one about not lusting? Or about what to do with one's money? Things get a little bit different when Jesus starts talking about anger and lust and money and blessing one's enemies. We move into the category of offensive, difficult, challenging, repulsive, not necessarily wanted. In the words of missiologist Daryl Guter, partly quoting the great, maybe the greatest missiologist of the late 20th century, David Bosch, Through the ages, Christians have usually found ways around the clear meaning of the Sermon on the Mount. We can thus read the history of Christian theology as the story of our various ways of reducing the gospel, especially in its particularity and specificity, to make it more compatible to our world and more palatable for ourselves. Anyone resonate with that besides me? Oh, it's so hard. Well, let's sort of massage it and tweak it and... Then we can sort of work out some of the offensiveness of Jesus. On the other hand, if we have never found, at least in some way, Jesus offensive, or if we don't, we've either died and gone to heaven, or I might suggest, we're maybe not fully in touch with ourselves, which is called denial. We're not in touch with the Jesus of history, history in the scriptures, or maybe just simply not in touch with the reality about how offensive Jesus can be. We can guess at some of the reasons that Jesus' friends and family in Nazareth took offense at Jesus. What is it that we today may find offensive about him is maybe the more important question for us here. Another way of asking this would be, in what ways is Jesus a threat to me and to you and to my kingdom and to your kingdom? And to my way and to my worldview and to your way and your worldview, in what ways is Jesus, my Jesus, in some small way, be a threat? This is the Jesus who said things like, leave all your stuff behind. Come and follow me. Remember Levi? Matthew? Go where I'm going. Deny yourself. One of Jesus' favorite things to say. Sell all you have and give it to the poor. That was, that was to a certain particular person. Maybe that's not Jesus' recipe for everyone. But those things get really hard. And maybe Jesus' friends and family and cousins in Nazareth had reasons and ways to find him offensive. We probably have some of our own. And it's not exactly what we like. Uh, we like, I mean, I like Everyone have a pair of comfortable shoes, a comfortable t-shirt, comfortable pair of pants or jacket. Like we like, I like, like don't you gravitate toward, I go to the same old pair of pants like all the time. We gravitate toward what's comfortable, what we feel at home in. And then along comes, along comes Jesus. Ah, well, um, It's been said that uh, a pastor's role or a preacher's role is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. 
Jesus sort of had a similar kind of deal. Don't we see that in the Gospels? Where he's healing and shepherding and caring and bringing along those who are afflicted. And at the same time just being awfully disruptive to a whole different group of people and to the same people in different ways. This is the Jesus of the scriptures. Whether we like him or not, whether we like that part of him or not. But this is the challenge and this is why we're going through the whole gospel of Mark. So we don't skip over those difficult passages of scripture. And so that we do get the true, full, complete Jesus. I don't know about you, but uh, if we look back on our lives, me, my life, sometimes I gravitate toward the cafeteria Jesus. Anyone else love the cafeteria Jesus? Okay, me and Sharon. Where you just, uh, Luby's Cafeteria was the big cafeteria chain in Texas when I was growing up. Shout out to Luby's Cafeteria. I don't know if they ever made it out of Texas, but they were big in Texas. And frequently on Sunday afternoon when my mom had a little bit more money in her pocket, she'd take us to Luby's and you'd just go through and you'd pick just what you like. And mom never said, you got to get that, you got to get that, you got to get no collard greens at Luby's. I find uh, some of us get awfully comfortable with Jesus, but I think there's enough offense in and about Jesus for all of us, regardless of one's political persuasion, whether one is rich or poor or tall or short or educated or uneducated, whether one's pro-life or anti-guns or pro-immigrant or help the poor or grace for everyone or carry your own load. If you haven't felt the offensiveness of Jesus, there's still maybe more of Jesus for you to discover. In his uh, book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, most of you know this, uh, C.S. Lewis in that series, there's a conversation between Mr. Beaver and Susan who's on this pursuit in this wardrobe land. And Mr. Beaver says, uh, introduces her to this messianic figure named Aslan. And he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? Said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's very good. And he's the king, I tell you. He's not always safe, but he's always good. Jesus can be awfully dangerous if we want to follow him, live in him, live by him, trust him, believe in him, walk in faith. Could be dangerous for our lives in a variety of ways, but always will be good through and through and through. The people of Nazareth, They did not question the veracity of Jesus' wisdom. Did you notice? They did not question the veracity of his wisdom or his intellect or his mind or his heart or the validity of his miracles. Didn't question those. They questioned his identity. They questioned whether or not 
they would follow him and whether or not he was worthy of being followed and bowed down to as Lord. And Mark kind of leaves it at that for us. At uh, the second half of chapter 6 is kind of this transitional verse. Jesus went on from village to village and taught, and there's bad news and there's good news in that. The bad news is that Jesus accepts his own family's verdict of rejection, at least at that time, and he leaves. And he may leave alone for a while, those people who choose rejection. The good news is that in their rejection, it neither discourages Jesus nor puts a stop to his work. He continues his ministry of teaching. He continues his ministry of preaching. He continues his ministry of healing. He continues his ministry of restoring. He continues his ministry of justice and righteousness and goodness and love and mercy and compassion. He cannot be stopped. He will not be stopped. He continues on whether or not people reject him or not. Because his kingdom is coming and he is the king. The question is what we think of him, how we feel toward him, how we will respond to him. With faith, believing, and living as if something is true or not. What do you think of Jesus? How do you feel about Jesus? And what response does that evoke within us? Do we have ears to hear? Do we have eyes to see? Let's pray. God, we really don't want to live on the edges of your kingdom. We really want to live in the middle of it. And yet it's scary. We have questions. We have doubts, hesitations, things that we're still holding on to, old ideas, things that we've trusted in, things that have sort of worked and yet not really worked in our lives. Help us to believe. By your grace, give us the gift of faith. We want you to be amazed at our faith, belief, trust, and not the other way around. We are amazed at your son, amazed that you would send him, amazed, astonished, in awe, delighted, blessed that you have come to us in Christ the Lord, Messiah, Son of God, one with the Father, that we might know you, that we might be reconciled to you. Bring with that reconciliation life, and life abundantly. And in doing so, may your people flourish, may the church flourish, and may through the church, the world, come to a saving knowledge, realization, awareness, of your glory and your goodness and bow down in worship before you, our King. We pray, ask, and seek in Jesus' name. Amen.